I'd like us to take uh, just another few moments to go to the Lord in thankfulness and prayer before we open the Word together today. Would you all join me in that? Good and gracious Father, you are the one from whom all good things come, from whom all blessings flow. We are the recipients of the love that you have within yourself, which has overflowed into your creation, and everything we see around us speaks of your kindness and graciousness. We bless you for the many good and merciful gifts that you have bestowed upon us. We thank you for life itself. We know that we were knit together in the womb, that we were known to you before our birth, that you have given us life, that this is a sweet and wonderful thing. We praise you for the health that sustains us, and we receive whatever measure of health that you have given to us as a kind and gracious gift from your hand. You've enabled us to be here, to be breathing and healthy enough to come here today and sit in this service and hear your holy word. And so we thank you for life and limb, for breath and health. We praise you for the provisions that you've made for us. We have been abundantly supplied. There is no doubt. The the one among us who has the least is blessed indeed. As we look around at a world where there is so much suffering and need and loss and lack, you have blessed us beyond measure. You have protected us. We are certain that there are many times that you have protected us and we were completely unaware of it. So we thank you for those things today. We do not take our safety for granted. And not only our physical safety, but most especially our spiritual well-being. You have kept us from destroying our lives as our sin nature would have done. And you've lifted us out of the pit. And even as your people, you have kept and protected us from such temptations of the devil as would have surely overturned our faith apart from your mercy. And so we praise you. We thank you for the simple joys of our lives. We thank you for the ability to see the colors of the leaves changing on the trees, and to feel the crisp coolness in the air, the ability to enjoy the tastes and smells of the foods that we partake of. We thank you for the simple joys of family life and love. Lord, we do not not grasp for great things of this world, we are content with what you have so sweetly and kindly given. We praise you for your presence in our deepest trials and tribulations, and that even in those darkest hours when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you have been there leading, shepherding, protecting, encouraging us. And we bless you that you know how to use both happy, blessed times and difficult, painful times to bring about our good. We thank you for your incredible wisdom in that. You the outworking of your plan to bring us into conformity to the image of Christ is unsurpassed in its wisdom and beauty. And we marvel at what you have done in our lives through the toil 
and the rest through the happiness and the pain. And we praise you that your presence has never left us. We give you thanks for our families, for our parents, for perhaps our children, Lord, those who have children, for our siblings, for just the joy of the common grace of family life. We thank you for our society, our, our state. Thank you for Texas. We thank you for the heritage of freedom and liberty that we have enjoyed here. We do not take these things for granted today, of all days. We thank you for our country, the liberties that we have, and especially the outpouring of your word that you have given to this the people of this land. Thank you for the effects that it has had on our culture. We praise you more than anything for yourself. You are the best gift divine. And of all of the gifts that we have, they are only sweet to us because you stand behind them and they are a reflection of your kindness and mercies and grace and love. So we thank you for yourself. Thank you for the body of Christ, even your people here and around the world. And rejoice together in all of your goodnesses today. We ask you for one thing, and that is today that you would open up your word to us, that it would not merely be empty words um, or just mere print on a page, but that today we may hear your voice, you might speak directly to our consciences and our hearts and our minds, and by the power of your Spirit, that you would transform us by what we see and hear today. We ask it in the name of our Savior, and for his sake, amen. Matthew chapter 19 this morning. Matthew 19, Uh, we've been studying together through the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, of course when it comes to something like a holiday where everybody's minds are already on something, uh, you know, sometimes preachers will consider that theme and what the scriptures have to say about it, not always. Um, In this case, I gave some thought to what the Bible has to say about giving thanks and recognizing God for all of His goodnesses, but the more I thought about it and the more I meditated and studied on this text, the more I, I just felt like this would be appropriate to just keep right on going, that this is maybe one of the, the best things. This is what the Lord has for us on this, this Sunday before Thanksgiving. Uh, the only way, though, to understand, I think, the text that we're going to look at this morning is to remember what's immediately preceded it. Because what we did last week was we began a discussion that really continues uninterrupted, but we interrupted it so that you didn't have a two-hour-long sermon. Um, as it is, they sometimes go a little long. So, um, so we have to get back into what's going on. Jesus, in his earthly life and ministry years ago, had an encounter uh, one day with a, a wealthy, young individual, a man who was some sort of ruler... Um, among the Jews, and this rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, Teacher, tell me what good deed I must do in order to have eternal life. And Jesus dealt with him in a very interesting way, um, on, on several different levels. And if, if you're interested in hearing about what it would mean for you to have eternal life, I hope that you will go back. And if you go online to our website, you can listen to last week's sermon. You go back and listen. 
because I think Jesus dealt with this man in ways that were actually kind of surprising to to a lot of us, but very eye-opening. One of the things that Jesus did in his conversation with this rich young ruler was to deal with him right at the very point of this man's idol, what this man was valuing more than anything else. Um, and that seemed to be his wealth, his possessions, and what, and the, the ease and the comfort that those things brought him. And Jesus put his finger right on that, right on this man's trust. And he challenged his thinking. And his, uh, part of the challenge that Jesus gave to this man was about his thinking about who Jesus was. Is he really the one who is good? That is, come from God himself. Is this God in the flesh? Is this really the Son of God? And if this is the Son of God, what else do you need to hold on to but him? So Jesus challenges him about his sin, his thinking about his sin, and his thinking about who Jesus is. And so, and here's the, here's the, the bottom line. Jesus says, if you want to have eternal life, sell what you have, give to the poor, and follow me. But unwilling to do that, the man turned around and went away. Now, the disciples, hearing all of this, begin to think about themselves in comparison to this man, in contrast, really, to this man. And Peter spoke for them, as usual, right? (laughs) And it's not hard to hear in Peter's response, which begins in verse 27. It's not hard to hear in this response an element of self-satisfaction and sort of expectancy. Look at verse 27 carefully. Then Peter said, in reply everything that they just seen with the rich man. He said, look, Lord, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus, in response to that question, gives two answers that we'll look at this morning. One is an encouraging affirmation, and the other is a gentle corrective. And you can see the shift when when he shifts in that. If you look at the very first word of verse number 30, and that is the word what? The word, did I give you the right verse? What is it? The word but? Okay, so there's the shift. So there is encouraging affirmation, and then there's a shift, and then he gives a gentle corrective of the disciples thinking, Peter, namely. Both of these answers are with regard to the question about the reward for following Christ. Lord, we have left all to follow you. What then will we have? And so here's Jesus' answer, beginning in Matthew chapter 19. If you're using a house Bible, that is page 824, beginning in Matthew chapter 19, verse 27. And Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father, or mother, or child, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers in his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, 
he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. And going out again, about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. The disciples had left, well, as they said it, we've left everything for you, Lord. They left their livelihoods. Some of them were fishermen, others tax collectors. They got up and walked away from everything that they'd been trained for and everything that they'd done for a living since they were probably 12 or 12 years old, 13, 14, however early these little boys started working with their dads out on the boats, and they got up and left that. They left their their families behind to have an itinerant ministry, just following Jesus around from place to place, never knowing quite exactly where they would sleep or what they would eat. Jesus said the foxes even have holes, but the Son of Man will not uh, have a place to lay His head. So these men have left these things to follow Jesus, unlike the rich young ruler, they have believed He is, in fact, the Son of the living God, and they have acted on that belief. And by the way, faith, belief, always shapes your actions. It is is inevitable what you believe will affect what you do, what you choose. In fact, the writers of Scripture say that's a good way to see what you really do believe, is what kind of choices you make, what kind of things you do. Well, these men, they had, they had left everything. They had followed Christ. They had works, as James would say, to show that they have faith. Remember, he said, some people say... I have faith. I have faith in God. I have faith in Christ. He says, show me your faith by your actions. These men had both faith and works, and they had left everything to follow Jesus. They said, Lord, we have works. And so here's how Jesus responds to them. First, he gives an encouraging affirmation. And this affirmation is that their works will not go unrewarded. Notice what he says in verse 28. Here's his first answer. Truly I say to you, you can bank on this, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The reward that he promised them was in the context of their new situation in what 
our translation calls in the new world. Let's talk about that for a moment. What is that new world? When is that new world? Um, And the, 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 the word that's translated the new world is actually the word for regeneration, being born again, right? So when the Bible talks about the regeneration or the new world, the new creation, it has in mind the restoration of all things, as the Bible says in Acts chapter 3, but really comes in two, you might say, two stages of the restoration or the regeneration. The first stage is what's happening right now in the present when men and women are born again spiritually. In fact, the only other use of this word in the New Testament, this very word here, is in Titus 3, 5, where it says, and you're probably familiar with this, a well-known verse, that we are saved by the washing of what? Of regeneration. That's the word. We're saved by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. So there is this sort of new birth, even now in the present, in which you are brought out of the old creation and already installed in the new creation, created in the new world. Right now, even while you're still down here in this old world, You're already seated with Christ in heavenly places spiritually. So there's the present stage, but there is a future stage. And that is when we, and and that is we Christians, and the whole world, in fact, is born again physically, you might say. This is the reference that the Bible makes to the resurrection of our bodies, in Romans chapter 8 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and with the resurrection of our bodies, also the remaking of the entire planet, as it were, that when our bodies are finally freed from the curse of sin, which is death, then all of the planet and all of the universe is freed from the curse that our sin has brought on our, uh, our world. And so... This is the sort of the consummation of this regeneration, um, this new world, this new creation. So now, if that's true, then to which of those stages do you think that Jesus is referring here when he says to his disciples that in the regeneration or in the new world, they'll sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I think, primarily, that his reference is to the period of the present for us, right now. And here's why, because he identifies that time of the new world in terms of the enthronement of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says, when the Son of Man sits down on his glorious throne. When Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, was ascended into heaven, and enthroned at the right hand of God, right? And we believe that's what happened. We believe He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and He rules and reigns over all things forever, awaiting the full manifestation of that glory, but He is enthroned. Now, then if that's the case, what does Jesus predict will be the blessing of discipleship, these men who left everything to follow Him, when He is ascended and seated on on the right hand of the Father, what will be the blessing for them? He says to them, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the days would come when these men who followed Jesus would find it very hard, very difficult, and they would be persecuted. They would be chased and hounded. And eventually, they would be martyred for the cause of their Savior. They would suffer, in many cases, the same fate that He suffered. 
And in doing so, they would enter into glory with Him and rule with Christ in heaven. Now, how is it that those disciples rule? Here's how. Jesus Christ gave to those men the, a fullness of the Holy Spirit, such a fullness as to bring everything that He ever said and did to their remembrance. How would you like to have that kind of gift of memory? Everything that Christ had said and done in His earthly ministry, He promised that the Holy Spirit would bring it to their minds and in turn that they would write and collaborate with those who would write and give to us the Holy Scriptures, that is, the New Testament, what we call the New Testament. And through those Scriptures, then the apostles would continue to rule over the people of God, that they would rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. And somebody says, well, what about the rest of us? And I remind you of the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, where he says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. So who is it that these apostles rule over? They rule over all of the people of God through the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ Himself ruling and reigning through them, and particularly through the Word of God, the Scriptures that He gave to us through them. These 12 men, minus Judas, were given a place of great prominence in the life of Christ's church. Which means for us that it's so important that we allow our lives to be ruled by the Bible, by the Scriptures. That we put ourselves under every word of everything that God said through His apostles and prophets. Because Christ Himself raised these men up and gave them that kind of authority and rule over His church. So listen to the Bible. Submit to the Bible. Listen, you need to hear and know the Word of God better than you do. Every one of us, that's true for. We need to examine our thinking and our actions more and more in terms of that apostolic testimony that we have as we turn the pages of our New Testament and really all of the Scriptures. So, Christ rewards these men, but the rewards for following Christ are not only for the 12 apostles, not only for Matthew, John, and so forth. Verse 29, look at this. Now Jesus expands and he says that everyone, notice the word? This is not, he says, you will be blessed for following me. But he says, but everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father, mother, or children, or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. There are rewards in both stages of the regeneration or of the new world. In this life, and, and Mark and Luke both make it clear that Jesus means for us to see a blessing for following Him in this life now, as well as in the age to come. In this life now, those who leave family or home will find that they have a hundredfold more. A hundredfold in family or lands, even now, because the family of Christ is now their family, and that family ranges over the entire world. Everywhere the people of God meet, that Christian finds a sweet home. This is the blessing of following Christ for everyone who truly belongs to Him. This is not meaning that every Christian, if he gives a hundred dollars in the offering, will give, have someone give him a thousand. Jesus makes it clear, I think, in the other Gospels when He says, you will receive a hundredfold. And I don't mean that you're not going to have tribulations. You will have tribulation. It's not going to mean everything is, is, uh, is, is health and wealth for you. But there is 
even in this life, a blessedness that is true of any, for any Christian who has left the things of this world in order to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think sometimes about how, you know, when you hear stories about well-known, wealthy, celebrity people who have everything that this world can offer and yet seem to be so very poor. How many rich and famous celebrities is on his fourth or fifth marriage with children scattered here or there and mostly disconnected and surrounded by flocks of fans, but so very alone. And some, some of them are honest enough to talk about it. And sometimes those, that aloneness even ends in tragedy. But I can testify that a child of God can travel to the farthest corners of the globe and find a home, a family, who not only welcomes him as a stranger passing through their midst, but as a brother, as someone to whom they have the deepest relationship of all. I have, I have been in, I, I remember years ago being in a, the home of a family in Pennsylvania when I was ministering in a conference and just walking away feeling like, you know, I'm leaving mom and dad behind. Or, or traveling to, to China and sitting down in the home of other believers and talking so sweetly about the Lord that we both just love more deeply than anything else. It was like, I have a connection. I, I can go anywhere in the world. And I've got houses. I've got lands. And I've got family. I've got mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters. It's like that, Jesus says, for anyone who is ostracized by his own kin for following me. This reward is in the present, but ultimately it is also in the age to come. Jesus says eternal life, where this person will be repaid far beyond what he could ever imagine. And again, don't take this as a... um, Don't take this as a a statement that you earn eternal life by turning your back on your family or selling your house. I think, I think that will become clear as Jesus continues. But Jesus is saying that someone who sees Jesus for who he is, He wants Jesus more than he wants anything else. And if his family is dead set against Christ or or, or the things of the world need to be sacrificed for the cause of his Savior, then he's happy to do it. This reward is not only in this world, but in the age to come. In the end, where Christians will be repaid far beyond anything we could ever possibly imagine. Paul writes, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are what? Not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Maybe your parent is not a believer, or your spouse or a sibling, and and your faith, your faith has created some distancing between you. I want to remind you, listen, I want to encourage you to believe this, to know this, that you are a part of a family that will live forever. You you have bonds with the people of God that will far outlast the bonds of any of the closest families you know in the flesh. Bonds of family that will go on for all eternity, a family that will live in perfect harmony together. Can you imagine that? You're about to go have Thanksgiving and sit down at the table with your family. And some of you, that's going to be, it's going to be a bit of a challenge. You will sit down at the table for all eternity in perfect communion 
with your family, worshiping and serving your Father in heaven. I can't wait. I honestly thought about this quite a bit this week. I can't wait to have time to do so many things with so many of y'all. I, I truly and genuinely believe those opportunities will, in fact, come to us. We've got a long time. I don't know what all eternity will, will, uh, will involve. We have a lot of time, and in that day we will have the resources of the world. The meek will inherit the earth, the whole planet will belong to that one great family. A whole world to explore together and to harness together for the glory of God and to enjoy. And whatever sacrifices that you make for Christ will seem in that day to be no sacrifice at all. I mean, you'd laugh at the word. Sacrifice. Like Paul says, whatever things I used to think of as gain, now I count them as loss. I count them as dung for the sake of Christ. Say, Paul, watch your language. <laughs> it's that kind of thing. What kind of what do you mean sacrifice? This is no sacrifice. I'm getting the de- the better end of the deal. I get Christ and I get his people. And I get communion with God as the people of God for all eternity in the presence of God working and serving in this new world and new creation as a new creature. I mean, Jesus wants to encourage them. He wants to affirm their commitment to Him even if it means leaving everything that they know. Until you get to the first word of verse 30, okay? Here's the word I told you about. Now here, I think, is a shift. This word usually indicates a shift, and I think it does so in this passage. And, and so don't let the, par- the uh, chapter break fool you either. Um, I don't think there's a, probably a good idea to put a chapter break there, but I wasn't around when they were making the chapter breaks, and they probably wouldn't have listened to me anyway. So, But in any case... Jesus now, from chapter 19, verse 30, to chapter 20, verse 16, offers a gentle corrective to the apostles' thinking. A gentle corrective. And you can see it, it's, it's kind of framed by a saying that's repeated at the beginning and at the end, in the end, of verse, in the end of chapter 19, and then again in 20, verse 16. He repeats this saying, the first will be last and the last first. The last will be first and the first last. This is a, a saying that frames a corrective that Jesus gives to their thinking, even while it's commendable that the disciples have left everything to follow Jesus, there is yet too much pride in them. Already they've been arguing, remember, how one or the other of them will be the what? the greatest in the kingdom of God. And by the way, they're not done arguing about that. We'll find out. It'll come up again. And you see it subtly, I think, even in Peter's statement. I don't think it's reading too much into this in the context of everything that Jesus is about to say. Look again at verse 27 at Peter's statement. He says, Lord, see, we have left everything and followed you. And in Greek, grammatically, you don't even need the the subject here. We have left. Um, It's just implied in the verb. We have left. But in the text that Matthew is inspired to write, it's there. We, it's almost like it's repeated. We, we have left everything to follow you. In, in, In other words, we're in great contrast to this person over here who is not worthy of you, but look what we've done. And so, and what does he follow up with it? What will we get from it? (laughs) We've left everything, so what do we get? We've been with you from the very beginning. We have made great sacrifices. What will we have? And I I think, I, I don't think, especially in light of what Jesus is about to say, that 
that it's wrong to see or that I'm reading too much into it to see in Peter's statement a little bit of a mercenary or a transactional kind of spirit. Lord, look what we've done for you. What are you going to do for us? How are you going to take care of us? How will we be great in your kingdom? Um, This is a little bit of a, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the news about quid pro quo, right? This for that. It's almost a little bit, I think, of that spirit in in Peter. And and frankly, I'm I'm not judging the man in a way that, doesn't bring judgment on myself. But he says, Lord, we've made sacrifices. What do we get out of it? And Jesus answers, those who think that they'll surely be first may find themselves last. And then he tells a memorable story to illustrate this correction, an illustration to correct their their thinking. And, and the story is very memorable, of course. Um, this vineyard owner who has a great vineyard that needs to be harvested. And so he goes out early in the morning to the town square and he finds day laborers and hires a number of them. They agree that they'll do work for him for the day for in exchange for a denarius, which is an average pay for a basic laborer in the field and and so but then but then in the third hour which is probably around nine o'clock in the morning so he goes out really early six in the morning or something then he goes out later on and uh, mid-morning and and he finds others in the marketplace who have no work and he says I will come work for me and I will give you whatever is right and then he goes out again and does the same thing at the sixth hour in the middle of the day and then later on in the afternoon. And finally, the Bible says he goes out at the 11th hour, like 5 o'clock in the afternoon. It's almost quitting time, right? So the sun's about to go down. And he goes out at the 11th hour and he finds men who are still standing in the market and he says, why are you standing? We have no work. And he hires them. And then... Here's the crux of the story. They come to the end of the day finally, or not so finally for those guys. They come to the end of the day, and the master says to his foreman, all right, you know, line everybody up and hand out the pay. And, but he, sell, he tells them specifically, line them up this way from the last first and then the first last. And so they line up, and they begin to come and get their pay. And to their shock and surprise, the Guys who worked an hour in the field get a denarius, a full day's wage. It's just amazing. And as the line continues to go, you know how it works. The whispers go down the line. Look what the master's doing. Right? Look what I got. And uh, maybe it's not so much whispers. Maybe they're loud shouts. I don't know. In any case, the guys in the back of the line have all of this time to think. And you know what? They're thinking the same thing you'd be thinking. What am I going to get out of this? Because look at all that I have done. I have done far more than they've done. So I deserve more. Right? That's the way they're thinking. And when they get up to the front of the line, what do they get? Of course, they get the denarius. A single denarius. And how do they respond? They are envious. And they are maybe angry. And they grumble among themselves. We did more than they did. We worked all day. We worked in the hot sun. You give us the same as these guys? How is that? What? How is that fair? And Jesus' answer in terms of the story here, the master's answer is, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Then take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Am I not supposed to be generous? I think there's four 
things that we can learn from this and as, as part of this sort of corrective that Jesus is, is giving to his disciples thinking. One is this, that God is never less than fair. Right? You agree with that? God is never less than fair. Every man among them got at least what he had agreed to, what was good, what was right, what was just. But there are times in in the, the life of almost every single disciple of Jesus where we are tempted to think that God hasn't been very fair. I've served Him. I've worked for Him. Maybe you'd say, I, I, even I've sacrificed for Him. But he's, he's blessed others, but not me. This guy over here, who seems to have hardly done anything for God, he, he seems to have all kinds of blessings on his life. And and the one thing that we can't say, though, in terms of this story and in terms of the reality that it's supposed to point to is that God has been anything less than fair. In fact, I would argue that there's not a one of us in here that really wants God to be merely fair with us, to be merely just. Right? Because God says, here is my word, obey. And there's not a man or woman or child among us who has not disobeyed Him and disregarded His word and so brought ourselves justly and fairly under His condemnation. Because if you obey, you live if you disobey, you will surely die. I mean, that's, that's the way the world works. That's the, that's the arrangement between God and humanity. And every one of us, I mean, who among you has not disobeyed God? Who among us has, I should say it this way too, who among us has perfectly and persistently done what God demanded in order to Um, in order to be pleasing to Him and everything. Every single one of us has fallen short. And and so I don't think any of us want God to be merely fair to us. But I think there's another lesson, and that is that many, in fact, all who are saved, really, many actually have received kindness far beyond mere justice. Many have received overabounding kindness that is far beyond mere justice. I mean, you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and God gave to you eternal life. He forgave all your rebellion and your sins and your wickedness. He gave you the righteousness of Himself, His Son's very own righteousness as a free gift He gives you peace and joy and promises to sustain you and assure you. He granted to you His very own indwelling Spirit in you. Have you forgotten how amazing that is? And most of us, you know, He's given many, many, many earthly gifts besides. And many blessings of following Christ, which are even yet to be realized, We're waiting for them in the age to come. And and so what happens is we get so fixated on the here and now as if that is all there is to life. Lord, you're not fair. And he says, I'm not done. He's saying, do you trust me? That I'll do what's right. That I am good. And I think the third thing that we could say about this is that the kindness of God, the kindnesses of God are based on His own free choice. The kindnesses of God come from His own free choice. 
You know, we complain that God's free choice seems to us at times to be arbitrary, to be inequitable even from our own standard of measuring things. But remember what the master says to his his servants? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? (laughs) Would, Would any of us say to God, you're not fair. What are you doing? He says, it's mine. It's all mine. Every good thing that you enjoy comes from me. Am I not allowed to do what I will with what belongs to me? Who are you and I to look at another, listen to me, at another fellow servant, another fellow disciple, and say, why does he get more than me? Why does she always have it so easy? You know, we're just like Peter, who, remember at the end of, the, of Jesus' earthly ministry, and, and he appears to the disciples and he says, he tells Peter um, what's going to be his fate for following Christ, and it's going to be a difficult death. And, and then Peter turns around and he says, well, what about, what about John? How, what's going to be his future? And Jesus, remember what Jesus' answer is? He says, you don't worry about John, you follow me. You follow me. That's what the Lord would tell you. That's what He wants you to hear today. You're looking at your brother over there, that laborer in that part of the field over there. You're looking at this disciple over here. You're thinking, hey, I... I've been more faithful than him. I've worked harder than him. I've made more sacrifices than him. He has such ease and such blessing and and everything's going fine. What about me? What do I get out of this? In this kingdom of the sovereign Lord of Lords, there is no room for envious comparisons. God is free. He's free to do whatever He wants with His own blessings and His own rewards, His own calling, His own gifts. All are from Him and at His disposal. And sometimes He rewards the last first and the first last. In fact, this whole section of the book, I mean, Jesus talking to them, has been basically turning their whole expectations, what? Upside down. And that's the way it is for us sometimes. We look at the way God, we think God is supposed to work in the world, and we think He's doing it upside down. He's doing it everything, He's doing everything backwards. And of course, in the end, in the end of this story, the actual reward of each worker was formally the same, wasn't it? It actually was the same in the sense that every single one of them received the exact same amount, that is, one denarii, uh, one denarius. The, the ultimate reward for every believer, listen, the ultimate reward for every believer is the same because the reward that we're looking for is God Himself. I mean, what more do you want? Are you so earthly-minded The reward, in that sense, is the same for all of God's people. The thing that was really different for each of these workers was the situation of each worker and, and the difficulty of his particular labor. And that is the free and sovereign choice of God. It is for you. The, the, the work that God has given you to do, the situation that He's put you in, the unique calling that He has put on your life, the road that He's given you to walk, that is the free and sovereign choice of God. And the reward for believers is based ultimately on faithfulness, not necessarily on duration or difficulty of the assignment. So we labor wherever God put us knowing that it is a blessing that we're out there having work to do at all. That's what these guys ought to have thought, right? It's a blessing that I'm not still back there in the, in, in the square with no way to feed my family tomorrow. I've got work. I'm thankful 
That's the way we ought to think. Rather than being envious of what God has done for others, we'd be destitute without the Lord and the mercy of the Lord. And that brings me to one thing lastly, and that is that for us to grumble to God about our lot in life or about the rewards that He seems to be giving out for serving Him, to grumble about those things is to reveal a transactional mindset, a subtle shift into a quid pro quo kind of mindset that undermines the gospel of grace. Grace is the mercy of God freely given to those who don't deserve it. And if we're not careful, we can subtly shift into a kind of thinking that, that looks, at, looks for a, a spiritual um, repayment, as it were, for the work that we have done or the, the suffering that we have endured or the, the, the uh, following that we have given to Christ. This is... Um, this is, this is a really the heart of much of the prosperity gospel. It's a kind of, of a give-to-get gospel. You give, so God will give to you. You give, and then you get to say to God, what's in it for me now? Look what I did for you. The gospel is not a give-to-get situation at all. Maybe part of the challenge is that Scripture speaks of rewards, and we're so conditioned to thinking of rewards exclusively in terms of merit. We tend to fall into the thinking that somehow we have merited some blessing from God. When the truth is that even what we render to Him has been first, what? Given to us. This is why the confessions speak of rewards from God as the rewards of grace. These are not rewards of merit. These are rewards of grace. This, this whole thing, I don't, this, this, this parable of Jesus' teaching, I don't think necessarily means that there's no correlation between our labor and our faithfulness and our eternal reward. There is another parable that hints that that may be the case. Remember the story of the servants who are given sums of money to invest, and the master comes back, and at the end of the story, he rewards them each differently according to their faithfulness or their lack of faithfulness. Rather, I think the point of this story is that when you, listen, when you begin to think of the rewards of grace as being about merit rather than about mercy, then you're in danger of being last in the kingdom of God. Our best sacrifices and greatest acts of obedience to God, what are they in terms of what we really owe to God? Some Christians are way up there on Mount Everest. Other kids are way... Christians may be way down here, so to speak, spiritually in, in Death Valley. But when you're looking at the earth from Mars, what's the difference? Right? Nobody match, reaches up to what they ought to be. The, the, the ups and downs of any of us, all of the reward that we receive from God is a reward of grace. God forbid that we should fall into the merit kind of thinking. So let us labor Brothers and sisters, let us labor and be faithful in our labor. Whatever part of the field I put you in, well, I mean, however hard that your patch of ground is, however hard it is, and however long He calls you, how, if you have to work during the heat of the day to break up that ground, and to sow that seed, you be faithful in what God has given you to do. Not grumbling, preparing, one with another, but standing amazed that you have work to do it all. Looking forward to the great reward that is God Himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Please drive these truths home to our hearts. Please bring these truths again to our minds at the moments when we are tempted to grumble and complain, we pray. Truly, Father, please, I ask you in your mercy to literally bring this passage back to your people when they are most deeply tempted. And we thank you for it. We thank you for giving it to us, for speaking to us today. Amen.